One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Get Rich Slow Club podcast is a collaboration between Tash Edgman from Tash Invest and Anna Christina from Perla. The Get Rich Slow Club acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land we record on. From coast to coast, across land, waters and communities, we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Any advice is general and does not consider your financial situation, needs or objectives. So consider whether it's appropriate for you. Welcome to the Get Rich Slow Club podcast, where we take you from beginner to confident investor, where we can teach you everything you need to know about investing. So come get rich slow with us. Welcome back. Today's episode, we answer all of the most common questions about investing. Everything from how often should I invest to how many ETFs is enough. But like always, we kick off the episode with our weekly money wins and money losses. Did you want to start, Anna? Yeah. um, So I spent $200 at Woolies and literally had enough for like three dinners. I'm blown away by the cost of inflation and shrinkflation which is actually when items cost the same, but they shrink. And you really can see this in a bag of chips or Pringles. <laughs> Flows my mind. Yeah. And chips have gone up as well. I've seen chips for six, $7. It's pretty crazy. I don't buy chips that often anyway, but it's wild. They're always the kind of the cheap snack in the aisle. It's uh, definitely one of the bigger budget items in our family of four with um, above that doesn't eat as much as the rest of us. So yeah, it's, <laughs> that's, I don't know. That's a very big loss. I feel like 200 bucks got me nothing. It's a lot. Mm. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Uh, my win is spending on things that I love. I just did a huge book order and I've read two of them this week already. I used to go to the library, but often had to go on long wait lists for the books that I wanted. Um, the one I just read yesterday was In Order to Live. It was about a girl escaping North Korea and I just could, could not get my hands on that one at the library, but I read it in a few hours. It was so good. I was also terrible at returning the books on time and always ended up paying a library fine. So recently I've just been buying books and then giving them to my friends and family afterwards. So I guess it's a money win, but also a bit of a money loss with all my library fines that I had to pay. I guess it's also a win if you're a friend of yours who gets a free book <laughs> once you're done reading. Yeah, my mom comes into my library when she visits and picks her books to take back with her. Oh, lovely. I'm going to try to score a book from you next time I see you as well. Yeah, just tell me which ones you want. I'll pick uh, some. Awesome. So let's start with one of the most frequently asked questions. How often should I invest? Very good question. You can use an investment frequency calculator. You fill in your savings each week, expected rate of return. I usually just put in 7% 
interest rate on savings, and the brokerage fee. Uh, why do you use 7%? I know sometimes I see 5% or 10% uh, when people are doing these calculations. Um, a very good question. Again, I have just picked seven, um, but I've se- I see them all as well. And I found this really hard when I first started. But the actual average annual return of the S&P 500 from 2002 to 2021 was 8.91%, but 6.4 adjusted for inflation. So I just like to use 7% to be conservative, but it's just an estimate. No one actually knows what the future returns will be though. So don't get too caught up in the exact number to use. Um, This is a question from Lizzie. I've had investing paralysis for about a year and it feels like you two will set me up to get in the game. Very nice. Um, Something that is holding me back is that I'm quite transient. I'm British, live in Australia and hope to move country a bit in the future. When I was looking up an investing platform, it seemed they all needed an Australian residential address. Any ideas how to handle this if you want to invest for the long term? Oh, this is a good one. I know I was in a very similar situation when I moved to Australia, trying to understand and figure out how to navigate living abroad and wanting to build wealth. Um, Since you didn't clarify whether you have permanent residency, there may be a few things you'll need to consider uh, prior to investing. One of the things to do is talk to a tax advisor in the UK. This will help you understand how to navigate residency and non-resident tax because they're slightly different. And as the two have very different tax implications, then it would be advantageous to talk to an accountant in Australia and see how you may navigate the space as a non-Australian, provided that you don't have permanent residency or citizenship. So some countries have double taxation treaties or double tax agreements. So speak to a professional is super important. Also, it's worth considering where you want to settle in the long term, because that makes a difference as well. The worst case scenario is that you would have to leave a country and need to withdraw during a market downturn. A book I found really useful was The Millionaire Expat by Andrew Hallam, which talks about investing as someone who lives abroad. So I'm not from the UK, I'm from Canada, but um, there was a lot of who that I had to jump through to figure this out. I was classified as a resident of Canada while living in Australia as a non-resident, which means that um, I had to claim Australian tax in Canada, but I also had to claim my whole foreign and worldwide income in Canada. And so there's oh. a lot of like considerations you have to do. And now that I'm a permanent resident of Australia and also a citizen, I have to claim my global worldwide income and foreign income in Australia, but not in Canada. That sounds very complicated. It is, it is. And it's just worth talking to a professional about this because had I talked to someone earlier, I would have learned how to navigate through this earlier because there is a lot of implication around those different things, being a resident or a non-resident for tax purposes. And it can be complex. So it's just better to talk to someone, get your ducks in a row because there's nothing worse than you know deciding you want to leave Australia and then being taxed so much because you didn't do the due diligence ahead of time. I know we want to all grow um, our wealth and make the best choices for ourselves, but this is definitely one of those situations where I think it's worth talking to someone who understands taxes in both countries. Where did you start to even find this information? Did you Google it or ask a friend or just go to a random accountant? How did you find someone to talk to? Uh, yes. Um, I'm trying to think back. I had an accountant in Canada who said that my taxes were too complex and yeah. I literally <laughs> cried because he gave me oh. not very good advice. I ended up finding an accountant at a bigger firm. And the reason I preferred this was because I think they get to bounce ideas off, off people and maybe have more clients and especially clients in a situation like me who's 
who was a non-resident or trying to claim non-residency as a Canada because I was trying to immigrate here and become a permanent resident. So that was kind of what initially triggered that, like doing the research. And then when I realized I wanted to become a non-resident of Canada, I started Googling that and finding tax firms that specialized in non-residents because I did own property in Canada. So I had an income coming in in Canada that I had to deal with taxes. So my situation is a little bit probably more complex than this person, but it is just worth Googling it (laughs) and finding someone to help you out because uh, it is just definitely something you don't want to get wrong because there was a lot of money I had to pay up becoming a non-resident, leaving Canada. There was, yeah, things I had to pay up in order to officially leave. And um, yeah, just worth knowing all that ahead of time. Yeah, not quite the same, but my parents moved to Indonesia and they were having trouble finding an accountant who specialized in like the Australian and Indonesia laws as well for tax. And just trying to find someone who knew that area was very challenging for them. But yeah, definitely worth finding that one person because there's so many different rules for people to learn. And it is one of those situations where it's just worth paying someone to do it. You're not going to figure out the taxes by yourself. Just pay no. someone to do it. And if a qualified accountant is saying this is too hard, then like I definitely couldn't figure it out by myself. Oh yeah. And um, Canadian taxes are a bit more complex than Australian taxes. Right. So yeah, fun times. And Great. this is definitely the case with Americans as well. So it's just mm. worth it. Worth talking to someone. So um, we have another question for, that we got in our DMs. It says, hey, ladies, I loved your most recent podcast. You spoke about the benefits of franking credits in it. If I'm invested in an ETF tracking the ASX, such as VAS, will I still get the benefits of franking credits in the distribution? Thanks. Yes, you will. So VAS is the Vanguard Australian Shares Index ETF and it holds the largest 300 companies in Australia. If you want to find which shares or ETFs have franking credits attached to them, you can Google the ETF and the word distribution or dividends. For example, Google VAS dividends and you'll find the franking percent number. The easiest way for me to find this consistently is on the ASX website. Franking credits are unique to Australian companies, so ETFs with purely US exposure, for example, will not have them. On the ASX website for VAS, it says franking 86%, so 86% of your dividends will be franked. If you don't know what franking credits are, go have a listen to episode 9, we talked about it there. Our next question, question about DCA, which is dollar cost average. I've just joined Perla and have four different ETFs I invest in. How do I DCA if the minimum per buy is $500? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And say I want to invest $500 a week. Do you alternate between a different ETF each week? 
How does this work with the auto invest feature as well? Good question. So again, like Tash said, DCA is dollar cost average, and it's a strategy used to invest in a regular cadence, regardless of what the market is doing. And we talk about this in episode three. So um, the first thing is, if you're invested in four different ETFs, some things to consider is what is the percentage split between the four ETFs? Is it 25% of your portfolio for each, or is the split something different like 10, 80%, 5%, 5% for the four? It might be something just to think about as you are investing, especially if you have international US, Australian or bonds and what percentage are allocated to each because you can actually uh, change the percentages on Perler to ensure that they're kind of set up the way that you want. So that's the first thing that I would just think about. Why would people have different splits? Oh, this is a good question. It depends on how much exposure you would want in a specific area. So in the example that I kind of said where it's international, US, Australian, or bonds, you might want 25 across the board, or you might want less bonds because you're younger and you have a longer time horizon, or you're close to retirement, so you want a larger percentage of bonds. So this is just um, something to consider. Also, the US is one of the biggest stock market exchanges and have a lot of companies, and um, you might want a larger part of that as opposed to your Australian percentage. Yeah. I really like to go and have a look at super funds and see how they allocate for this as well. Um, They break down like 50% to US or 50% to whatever else or 10% to Australian. That's a cool way to see how they allocate things. But sorry for interrupting. No, it's great. It's great to talk about that percentage um, split because I know it's something that when I first started investing, I thought quite a bit about and uh, got a little bit overwhelmed. (laughs) Yeah. Like how do people just know this magic number because everyone just seems to know. They're just like, oh, this is the aggressive one. I'm like, but where did that come from? But all the experts do it. So that makes it helpful. Yeah. So once you know that percentage split of how you want to do that, um, to answer the question specifically, which is how should you invest? There are three main options that you can kind of invest on Perler if you set up auto invest. There's lowest share rebalancing and equally invest. So I'll just talk about each of them. The lowest share is that you can invest in an ETF that is the furthest from your target percentage you've allocated. So when you choose this option, you would only be charged one brokerage fee per transaction. So again, if you're, for example, have an ETF set up at 25%, but it's dropped quite a bit and it's now at 10%, it'll choose that share to invest in for you so that it gets closest to your percentage that you've had. This is the option that I do because I don't want to spend lots on brokerage fees. So I pick this option and it just invests every time just into one ETF for me. Yeah. And it might be that it invests continuously into the same ETF because that ETF has dropped in value. So it looks or dropped in your percentage. Yeah. And I think with um, dollar cost averaging as well, like you don't have to invest every single week into every single ETF. Like dollar cost averaging can be a little bit less infrequent. Um, So instead of investing 10 grand at the end of the year, you've invested four times throughout the year. Like that is still dollar cost averaging into the ETF. Yeah. So the second option that you can also choose is rebalancing your portfolio. So this option rebalances your portfolio to the target percentage you've allocated for each ETF. So it's, it purchases it across all your ETFs. So if you have four, it would consider the percentage you set and rebalance your portfolio so that it meets those targets that you had. Multiple brokerage fees may apply to this option. And this is actually sometimes I do this for my Canadian accounts, actually, to be honest. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, just because I've got a couple different things there and uh, the broker fees are a little bit different than here in Australia. How often do you do that in your Canada one? Oh, good question. I do that probably quarterly. Okay. Yeah. 
that makes a lot more sense because if you're just doing like a few brokerage fees quarterly compared to a few brokerage fees every single week or every single fortnight. Yeah. It's usually when my dividends come in. Awesome. And then the third option is equally invest across your portfolio. So let's say it splits that $500 a week equally across all your four assets. So they'd all get a 125 each. So multiple brokerage fees may apply to this uh, specific option. I think that's a good idea for how you were saying if you were doing it every quarter or every year and you're investing less frequently, that might be a good option. But I'd be really careful on spending too much on brokerage fees if you're trying to do that every fortnight with $500 or $1,000. Um, this is a good time to go and use the investment frequency calculator. Oh yeah, good call. All right, on to the next question. So I'm finally in a position where I am comfortable to start pushing money towards investments, no debt, a higher income, and in a stable job. My goal, like many, is getting to fire, own a home, and then move to part-time work to supplement my income while I spend my days with friends and family. Oh, that's the life, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm considering in investing primarily in dividend stocks, sacrificing capital gains for a regular passive income. So my question is, what should I know before doing this? What are the tax implications? What are the risks? Is this even recommended considering my goals? And if this is a viable avenue, what strategies would you recommend? I love how well thought out this question is. Um, It seems like you've considered a lot of things in terms of your goals and what you're actually looking for and that you want dividends in the future. But there are a few things to consider. The first thing to consider is your income and to check what your marginal tax rate is. The capital gains tax discount may make it worth targeting capital growth instead. You'll also have to consider franking credits as a way to reduce your tax liability, but this could also change in the future. For younger or higher income investors, targeting capital growth is usually more beneficial due to the capital gains tax discount for holding investments for longer than 12 months. Also, your income may increase over time, and since dividends are taxed as income, you will need to consider your marginal tax rate. I initially liked the thought of dividends, but then I learned that this isn't the most tax-effective way during the accumulation phase of my life. Currently, the highest tax bracket gets taxed 45%, which is huge. That's 45 cents on the dollar for any income over $180,000. $180,000 may seem like a lot now, but if you're investing for the long term and are looking to increase your salary and potentially buying a rental property, then it's a good idea to plan for the future. It may be worth spending some time doing tax planning with your accountant to see how you can reduce any income in the future. But also, if you want to target dividends because you like seeing those income payments, there's nothing wrong with that. I know when I first started, I loved having dividends hitting my bank account. And I was like, oh, look at all this money that I'm making. So if that's something you're aiming for, there's nothing wrong with it. But these are just things to consider as well. And the other consideration is if you're moving to part-time work in the future and you'll have a lower income, this might not actually change your marginal tax bracket at all. So yeah. And again, like how close are these goals? How close are you to fire? How close are you to owning a home? Are you having a rental property too? Are these things happening in five years? Are they happening way later down the track? All things to consider. Our next question is, which Perla micros are ethical? Another word for ethical when it comes to investing is e- ESG, and that means environmental social governance. In a previous episode, which is episode eight, we talk about the different types of investments, such as chess custodial and micro, which are all a little bit different. So Perler Micro is a managed fund that holds ETFs to make investing in smaller amounts much more accessible. You can do roundups as well, which let you invest smaller amounts, rounding up your everyday purchases. So just a little bit of what Perler Micro is. So back to the question, there are two ESG funds. There's ESGI, which focuses on global large ESG companies. And then there's GRNV, which is invested in Aussie large ESG companies. Both of these managed funds hold VANEC ETFs. You can actually click on ESG on the Perler micro page to see what they are exactly. And um, again, ESG is a term used for ethical investing interchangeably. We also have an ESG interview coming up. So uh, definitely look out for that 
episode coming soon. Yeah. And also I think it's really good to get into the habit of looking up these ETFs yourself on the fund manager website. So go onto Vanek, type in ESGI or GAV. Envy um, and see what they hold and what dividends they pay and stuff like that as well. It's always helpful to have a better understanding of what's actually in your fund, especially when it comes to ESG investing. Next question. Hi, Tash. Love the two episodes that have dropped so far. Can I please ask, are you only going to get the compounding result with investing if you reinvest dividends that you're paid? Many thanks, Victoria. This is a very good question, um, but no, compounding will still happen if your shares increase in price. This is how compounding works. Let's say your share is worth $10 and has a 10% annual return. Next year, your share will be worth $11 and the year after $12.10. Compound interest is just your returns making more returns. So capital growth will compound. Reinvesting your dividends will just add to the compounding. It's important to know your overall return. If your dividend return is 4% and your capital growth is 6%, then your total return is 10%. So compounding will have the greatest effect on the total return. Compounding works in the reverse too. So if you have a credit card or mortgage, your debt will also compound. Often investing returns are seen as a total return, including the capital growth and dividends, which is why we often say it's important to use tools like ShareSight or Novexa to see this because um, it really helped me understand how compounding works if I'm not investing my dividends versus if I am. Um, a fun conversation I've been having recently is around hex debt. So your hex debt will compound. Compounding is just a mathematical formula that can be applied to many things. I think it's one of those things that people don't realize that it compounds as well. You know, like if something is, let's say your mortgage is 4%, but your hex debt is 7%. 7 7.1. 7.1. Yeah, exactly. The one. Why? Why? Like there's a bit of a disconnect. Like, does it actually? I think it's kind of like the marketing terms the government has always used. Like it's not marketing, but they say your hex debt is indexed and they keep saying that it's not, it's not an interest rate. It's just indexed according to inflation, but really that indexation is still an interest rate that's applied to the debt every single year. And that will continue to compound. Um, so same with your mortgage, the interest rates applied, it's like it changes depending on the economy and what's going on, but it will compound every single year until you pay it off. So in that case, if one of your interest rates are quite high, it might be advantageous to pay that off quicker than something that has a lower interest rate as opposed to the actual amount. Yeah, this is a whole, we could do a whole episode on this one. But there's like other factors that go into it. So sure, the first one is looking at your interest rates, but also it's things like stress and your goals and whether it feels better to pay something off. Yeah. Exactly. Well, let's save that for another episode because that is a whole big topic. Okay. Before we sign off, are there any action items for a community, Tash? Yes. I loved doing this Q&A episode. It helps make it so much more relevant rather than us just talking about concepts and things. So send us your questions. Keep an eye out on Instagram for when we pop up a question box. Um, We got some cool voice note ones that we're going to do whole episodes on. So if you want to send us your voice audio question, we love that too. But yeah, just keep an eye out on the Get Rich Slow Club Instagram and send us, keep sending us your questions. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us in this episode. If you found it helpful, feel free to leave us a rating or review or share with a friend. Make sure to follow us on social at Get Rich Slow Club, or you can follow Tash at Tash Invests or me at Anna Christina. This show was brought to you by Natasha Etchman, who is an authorized representative, 12-99881 of Guideway Financial Services, AFSL 420-367, and Perla, who is an authorized representative, 128-1540 of Sanlam Private Wealth, AFSL 337-927. Knowledge is power. 
especially when it comes to investing. So make sure you check out our financial services guides and read the product disclosure statement and target market determination for any investments you're considering. See our show notes for more info.